Alzheimer's disease is a devastating condition that will cause an incredible burden on our society. What does the future hold in terms of promise for treatment? Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD, XM160, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Lee Friedman, your host, and with me today is Dr. Samuel Gandhi, professor and director of the Farber Institute for Neurosciences at Thomas Jefferson University and chair of the Medical and Scientific Advisory Council of the Alzheimer's Association. Thank you so much for being with us, Dr. Gandhi. Thank you. Alzheimer's is on the rise as our population ages. What type of numbers are we looking at as we look to the future in terms of the burden of this illness? Well, the illness affects about half of the over 85 population. So the threat is incredible. The cost of Alzheimer's alone will exceed the entire budget of Medicare by the year 2050. The numbers now of affected people in the, in the United States are in the 4 million range. And that's going to quadruple, really, in the next five years. So the, the cost in dollars as well as the human cost is, is staggering. It will overwhelm many parts of the society, I mean, the, both the economic and the social structure of the society. Given that ominous forecast, is there progress being made in terms of prevention or treatment of this illness? Well, the way we look at Alzheimer's disease has really been revolutionized, I guess, since the 1970s. At that point, it was first recognized that senility was not an inevitable part of aging. There were people living past 100 that were totally cognitively intact. And it ultimately became clear that the main cause of this was a disease called Alzheimer's that had originally been attributed only as a rare disease of middle-aged people. The first patient described by Professor Alzheimer was 55 years old and was thought to be this rare disease of midlife from really 1907 till the mid-70s. And it became clear that senility that many of the older population were developing and being put away in nursing homes looked just like this what was thought to be a rare disease. So in the 80s then, as biochemistry began to sort of mature and chemists and biochemists took on the problem, the proteins that build up in the brain began to be identified as well as uh, the proteins that were or the substances that were deficient. So the deficiency of acetylcholine was discovered and that was then immediately compared to uh, what we already knew about dopamine deficiency in Parkinson's. So we thought, well, this will just be a simple transmitter deficiency disorder and we'll replace it and everything will be fine. That turned out not to be the case. There are proteins that build up both between the nerve cells and inside the nerve cells. And the ones that build up outside form miliary spheres called amyloid plaques. They're amyloids of all different tissues that renal amyloid, cardiac amyloid. They're different in their amino acid sequence but they, the structure of the deposits, the structures are all similar. So they all bind standard dyes, thioflavin and Congo red. These are, are proteins that are produced normally and exist in at least two different conformations. One sort of shape that's soluble, but another that precipitates and forms these plaques. So we have this abnormal accumulation of beta amyloid plaque in the brain. That's right. And despite that, this substance, the soluble form before it's been deposited is made all throughout the body, all throughout life, by every cell, all throughout the brain. And one of the great mysteries is why it deposits only in certain regions of the brain and only in the brain. But we, we still don't understand that. The first clue to the genetics was the recognition that people with trisomy 21 all develop Alzheimer's by their mid-40s. 
And that then was followed a few years later in the mid-80s by the sequencing of amyloid and the discovery that amyloid was on chromosome 21. So that then immediately suggested that the reason down, people with Down syndrome were getting Alzheimer's was because they had a genetic overdose of amyloid. About five years later, the first mutations in, in amyloid were discovered that caused rare forms of familial Alzheimer's. And since then, other genes have been identified that all converge on the amyloid pathway. So we believe that Alzheimer's begins with the formation of amyloid. The other sort of not so rare but not very common dementia, the frontotemporal dementia, may be responsible for 15% of all dementia, um, is, is also due to mutations, but that's due to mutations in the protein that builds up inside nerve cells, a protein called tau that forms the skeleton of the cell. If you have mutations in the tau gene, you get frontotemporal dementia with just tangles and no plaques. If you have mutations in amyloid, you get Alzheimer's disease with both plaques and tangles. So it would seem to me that if we're starting to understand the genetic basis for this, there certainly is possibility for intervention and to change some of these genes and perhaps prevent. The genetics has really been the turning point because it enabled us not only to have rational therapy, because before you always saw a pathology where it was burned out, neurons destroyed, accumulations of amyloid and tangles, and no way of knowing what came first or what came second. So the genetics told us that amyloid came first. The genetics also gave us tools to model the disease in laboratory animals, usually mice. Turns out that the mouse amyloid gene is slightly different from ours. So mice never get Alzheimer's. Mice, no matter how they how long they live, their amyloid doesn't clump the way ours does. So we could we only began to be able to model Alzheimer's in mice when we put in the human gene with transgenic mouse. We take the human Alzheimer genes, the mutated human amyloid genes, put them into a, a mouse oocyte as the as the egg is being fertilized. You just put in this human gene that gets incorporated into the mouse's DNA, genetic material, and that mouse then expresses the human gene. And now we have a mouse that has amyloid plaques. So, so really what happened from there was a biochemist, cell biologist, began to study amyloid metabolism in cell culture and in dishes and in these mice, and medicines began to come along that would cure the mice, approaches that we could intervene and either usually, most effectively, prevent the mice that had the human genes, prevent them from getting the Alzheimer pathology. If you've just tuned in, you're listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM160, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Lee Friedman, and with me is Dr. Samuel Gandhi, Chair of the Medical and Scientific Advisory Council of the Alzheimer's Association, and we are talking about future directions for treatment of Alzheimer's disease. Dr. Gandhi, with these understandings, are there specific products now that have been looked at that may soon come into practice? The strategies aimed at amyloid really fall into three different categories. There are immunotherapies, and there are those are in clinical trials, both vaccines in which the amyloid is used like a flu shot, or infusions like chemotherapy that have the antibody already made synthetically. That that's in phase two and phase three clinical trials now. There are medicines. Uh, there's one called PBT2 that helps to keep amyloid dispersed, keep it from clumping so the brain can deal with it. That's also in phase two clinical trials. 
There are some medicines that are also aimed at the tangles. And we know the tangles may be important in how the, how the nerve cell responds to amyloid poisoning or amyloid toxicity. There's some people who believe that if you stabilize the the tangle, the, the, the tau protein, that, that the nerve cell might actually be able to resist the amyloid poisoning. So a, a medicine called Rember, also it's actually a derivative of methylene blue in a preparation that used to be used for urinary tract infections, seems to help to stabilize the skeleton of the, of the nerve cell and help it cope with, at least in animal models and in phase one and phase two trials, looks somewhat promising. We've only, only in the past six months heard of the first medicines like this that are aimed at tangles. We've had some amyloid therapies for, gosh, about almost 10 years now, but these medicines for, for tangles are, are new. Another one, which is also very promising, is called Demobon. It has a very, very strange history. It's not clear exactly how it fits into the plaque and tangle story. This is a medicine. It's in phase three trials now. There's a lot of safety data behind it, and the FDA has been very encouraging about how it's going to go. You may have watched the series finale of Boston Legal. The William Shatner character was suing for access to Demobon. But it was an antihistamine in Russia used for initially for hay fever. A Russian scientist was screening drugs to try and find the medicine that would combine the actions of cholinesterase inhibitors and Namenda. This is what he pulled out. He then gave it to aging rats, and their memories improved. And ultimately, a small biotech company in California saw the data, was convinced there was something there, and did a clinical trial in Russia, but with scientists overseen by clinical trialists from the United States who are, are among the best in the, in the world. And that report came out in Lancet last summer and is clearly better than anything we have. There is improvement of cognitive function over the first four to six months and stabilization for up to 18 months thereafter. And that's better than anything we, again, assuming that that's repeated, that's confirmed, that looks better than anything we currently have. And as an antihistamine, I imagine, well-tolerated and, as you say, a lot of safety data behind it. That's right. Yeah, it's, it looks very safe. And the cognitive benefit, you know, again, as it was reported, was really very striking. I've seen some reports about insulin or hypoglycemic drugs. So it seems that, I mean, I'm sure you're, you're aware that people with diabetes have increased risk of vascular disease, including cerebrovascular disease, and there's some link between that, uh, between cerebrovascular disease and Alzheimer's. It's, it's no longer thought of, there's these, this clear distinction between degenerative dementia on one hand and vascular on the other. There, there's a big overlap, and vascular seems to increase the risk for, for Alzheimer's. Diabetes seems to play into this in some way, and it's not clear whether it's because the diabetes is aggravating the vasculopathy, the vascular pathology, or whether insulin itself is playing a role. There is exploration of that to see if there's trying really trying to understand what the link is between diabetes and Alzheimer's, and of course, if we understand that better, perhaps we can aim novel therapies, especially at people who have, have diabetes or are at increased risk for Alzheimer's. Very interesting. And as you look to the future, are there any treatment paradigms? Are, are there going to be combinations of the immunotherapies with the other therapies? Any feel for that? There are two sort of visions for the future. The first is that we, where we think we really need to get is prevention because 
we really don't know how to, to repair the damaged brain, damaged adult brain, brain very well. And the best thing we can do, I think, is to get to the point where we have either a blood test, a genetic test, or a brain scan that predicts who's at the highest risk so that they can start on medicines for plaques and tangles very early. But the idea of combination therapy, the other thing that you mentioned, is definitely on the horizon. And we, we think that would take a page from the playbook of cancer where we would use medicines that attack several different steps in a pathway. And that way, by hitting several different steps, have a greater chance of shutting the pathway down altogether. Well, I want to thank Dr. Samuel Gandhi, the chair of the Medical and Scientific Advisory Council of the Alzheimer's Association, for discussing with us the future outlook for Alzheimer's, the incredible potential burden that it may be for our society, but then balanced by some promising new therapies, and hopefully with more support for research, we will be able to meet this challenge. This has been the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM160, the channel for medical professionals. Thank you very much for listening.